Let's read the text, and then we'll take a moment to pray and ask God to open our hearts and our minds, and uh, then we'll jump in and get to work. Look with me, Matthew chapter 23. We're looking this morning at verses 37 to 39. Jesus says, as his final word to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Israel, and to those who are following them, the whole crowd gathered together in the temple compound. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we just say thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you, Lord, for the life that he lived, but most importantly, for the death that he died. Thank you, God, for showing us just how much you care for us, how much you love us, and showing us the beauty and the goodness of that perfect love in Christ. Father, the mystery of iniquity is something that none of us fully understand or fully grasp. It boggles the mind that you could have individuals face-to-face with the Messiah himself and yet have hearts so hard and cold that they couldn't recognize him for who he was and furthermore conspire to kill him. Lord, we just pray that you would help us to see just how stunning this final word of judgment is and the contrast with that incredible love that you speak for these people. Help us to sense that love this morning and help us, Lord, to have soft hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Can you recall the first time you ever heard that famous question from Hamlet, to be or not to be? That is the question. It's one of those punchline slogans that's bandied around Um, it speaks to the deeper nature of life itself. We all ask these fundamental worldview questions. Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? What is God calling me to do? You know, what is the meaning of life? Those are all really, really deep questions that at some point in time, all of us pause and stop to consider. While we think about those deep, profound worldview questions, it's also important to recognize that there are other very deep and profound questions that affect our lives that we think about quite a bit such as the famous French line often posed to oneself while picking petals from a daisy. She loves me, she loves me not. I can recall as a high school student, that was a fundamental question. (laughs) Now this might shock some of you, but in high school I wasn't exactly the guy that always had a date on Friday night. I know it's Unbelievable for some of you to comprehend that, but it's true. I wasn't the most uh, popular or well-liked kid in school, and yet, being an American, I haven't really noticed something really similar to this here in Canada, but in the States, they have this event that happens every year. It's also a very strong Texas tradition. It's it's an amalgamation of a dance combined with a football game. They call it homecoming, and if you're cool, you have to have a date to go to this dance, and then you have to show up to the football game afterwards. Loved the football, didn't really care for the dance, but if you showed up to the football game and didn't go to the dance, then you weren't cool and you got made fun of. So one of the things you have to do is you have to get a date. Even 
whether you even want a date or not, it doesn't matter, you got to get a date. And so as we would do every year, my buddies and I would stand around and ponder who it is that we could ask to go with us to this dance, who it is that might love us enough at least to say yes to one, one night, and uh, this was a constant source of tension and debate in our lives. Now, you may not know this, I know some of you don't know this about me, but I actually have an identical twin brother an identical twin. In fact, he could be standing before you now. It could be Jacob Claycamp preaching to you, and you wouldn't know it, okay? We are completely identical in every regard. My wife is out ill this morning. She might not appreciate me saying this to you, but when we started dating, she will tell you that even she herself, at several points early on in our relationship, confused the two of us. That's how close we, we look. That's how much we resemble each other. At any rate, we're debating who we're going to take to this dance. This is before I met my wife, so this is with a different girl, a lady by the name of Stephanie Adamson, who will forever live in infamy. At any rate, <laughs> at any rate, my identical twin brother gave me the stunning suggestion, you know, I think Stephanie Adamson might like you. My brother's never offered me any helpful advice ever, and so this kind of struck me as peculiar, but I thought, hey, maybe he's turned a leaf and he's actually interested in me getting a date to this dance. So I began to sort of observe Stephanie Adamson from a distance, asking myself the question, does she love me? Does she not? Does she love me at least enough for at least one date? And as I began to kind of watch her and observe her, she observed me observing her. And she did what girls do when they notice the guys watching them. She kind of started to smile and kind of give that shy little wave. I thought, okay, she loves me. She loves me. <laughs> yeah. And all my buddies said, yeah, man, she loves you. Go ask her out to the dance. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I did. I approached her, and I was thinking to myself, does she love me? We're about to find out whether she loves me enough. I said, Stephanie, uh, as you know, the homecoming dance is coming up on Friday night. Need a date? I'm thinking maybe you might like to go. I'd like to take you. Is that something that interests you? And she said, I've been waiting for you to ask me for so long. And I thought, yeah, she loves me right on. I said, that sounds great. So I'll pick you up Friday night. And she says, yeah, yeah. We were so excited and so, so eager that I, I forgot to get her home address and we forgot to set a time. I was just like, yes. I went back and all the guys were clapping and cheering. You know how they do. They see a successful interaction. They say, good job, buddy. They're patting me on the back. Everything is great. We go home that evening. This is before cell phones. This is when there's only the one line in your house. You know, we, I lived at a time in which we did have cordless phones, you know, but it was still attached to a base unit. Go home that evening, phone rings, there's no caller ID. You pick it up, you say, hello. And I heard the sweet, wonderful voice of Stephanie Adams saying, hi, is this Josh? I say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's me, Josh. She said, hi, Josh. Hello. She says, is your brother Jake home? To which I said, uh, yes. What do you need to know that information for? You know, rather dense fellow. She says, well, I'd like to speak to him if he's available. So I turned to my brother, and he's just across the room from me, grinning ear to ear. <laughs> I walk over, I hand him the phone. 
He says, hello? Hi, Stephanie. And I could hear, the, the volume was turned up just loud enough that I could hear, hi, you know, I was just wondering what time you're going to come pick me up Friday night, blah, 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 blah. She's posing the question to my identical twin brother who looks just like me. To which my brother immediately begins that sly chuckle. <laughs> says, Stephanie, uh, I didn't actually ask you out for Friday night. That was my identical twin brother who asked you out. And I could hear the gasp of horror on the other end of the line. And I thought to myself, she loves me not. She loves me not. And I was angry. I mean, how could she love him more than me? He's the ugly one. But nevertheless, there's a few more words that exchanged. And my brother says, yeah, okay, you want to talk to Josh? And he begins to approach me, handing the phone back. Well, that's probably the most horrifying moment of any young teenager's life in which he's asked a girl on a date, found out that it, she's actually interested in your identical twin brother, and now she wants to talk to you again. I was just assuming the date was off, but here she is wanting to talk to me. So I said, uh, uh, hello, hello? And I heard this sigh, <sighs> okay, so what time are you going to pick me up on Friday night? <laughs> What was a guy supposed to say that? I don't want to just go with a girl just because she feels obligated because she said yes. I mean, all the thoughts began to run through my head. What kind of a self-respecting man is going to say yes to this at this point in time? I'm better than that. I don't have to begrudgingly go to some girl or some dance just so people don't make fun of me. And yet the question was posed. It was right there. And so do you know what I said? I said to her, I said, Stephanie, look. Pick you up about seven. Hung up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> She loves me enough, right? She loves me enough. <laughs> at any rate, those are questions that afflict us when we're at a young age like that. We, we're pondering, what is the meaning of life? We're pondering, why am I here? Why did God put me on this earth? And yes, absolutely, undeniably, particularly at a younger age, one of the questions we're thinking to ourselves is, you know, who are we going to marry? Who are we going to live life with? We're looking at potential mates. We're asking the question, does she love me? Does she not? Those are questions which afflict us. And they're not, it's not to say that those things are not important questions that we shouldn't be asking ourselves, but they're not the most important question. The most important question that we should be asking ourselves at any age, regardless of whatever our dating relationship status might be, regardless of anything else that we might be facing, whether decisions to go to university, decisions to career, what type of job we'll have, the most important question we should be asking ourselves is, do we gather or do we scatter? Do we gather together with the Lord, or do we scatter from Him? Jesus concludes His sermon here in Matthew chapter 23, and that is the fundamental question. Do you gather together with the Lord, or will you be scattered from Him? The question is not, does God love you or not? Does God have a heart for you or not? Does God want you to be saved or not? Unequivocally, absolutely, yes, He does love you. Yes, He does desire salvation. The question is, will you be gathered together to Him? This is the question that Jesus poses at the tail end of Matthew chapter 23. For those of you who are just joining us this week, we understand this is Wednesday of Passion Week. In two days, not even 48 hours' time, Christ is going to be crucified. There are a number of events that are contributing to this. 
not least of which is this final sermon that he preaches here in the temple compound to the religious leaders, to the scribes and the Pharisees, in the presence of untold multitude, the crowd that is listening to him. On seven different occasions, he pronounces woes upon them. He ridicules them for their blindness. He points out to them their blatant hypocrisy. Over and over again, he mentions the fact that they are leading people astray and making them twice as much a son of hell as they themselves are. And then he concludes, and again, this can only be considered one of the most heated fire and brimstone sermons you could ever have heard. He concludes with this question. He he poses it. If you look at the text just before, he makes the statement in verse 30, say, oh, I've lost my place now. He makes a statement in verse 30. If you look, he says, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of innocent blood. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. He poses this question, how are you to escape hell? You would think that he is just interested in slamming these guys for all that he's worth, pointing out to them their condemnation, their judgment, the coming reality of an eternity spent in hell. But then he concludes with this statement. His final thought here is not one of anger and judgment. The deepest heart that Christ has, the deepest feeling, the deepest sentiment, the deepest emotion that he's having is not one of judgment, but a desire ultimately for their salvation, which is why he preached that fire and brimstone sermon. Look what he says, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Yet you would not. A Greek word there is thelo. It means will. He's saying, I have desired, I have longed, I have wanted to gather you guys together. I love you. I've wanted to pull you in the way that a hen would gather her chicks together. I've wanted to do that, but you willed not. The question is not, does God love these guys? He does. He wants them to come and be a part of his family, but they don't want it. His statement is, you would not. Now, before we go on, the question has to be asked, how exactly do we gather together? The fundamental question that's presented to us by this text is, do we gather together with the Lord or do we scatter? There are at least three things I want to point out to you here in this particular passage. Number one, to be gathered together to God is first to desire God, not as a gateway to some other pleasure, but as the ultimate pleasure in and of itself. This is the number one thing. He says, how I have longed to gather you. Notice the text. He says, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood. In this metaphor, God is presenting himself as the hen, as the mother chick. And his statement is, I've wanted to gather you together the way that a hen would gather together her baby chickens to himself. His desire is that they would be with him. To be gathered together to God, because they do not will to be gathered together with God, to be gathered together with God must start with a desire for God. And this is a critical issue. So often we hear about the pleasures and the luxuries of heaven. 
We hear about the reality that there will be no more pain, no more suffering, that there will be no more sickness, no more disease. We'll be back together with all of our friends. There will be uninterrupted fellowship. We've tasted just a little bit of that sweet fellowship here this morning, just meeting other believers in the Lord, serving the Lord. But sometimes when we present the gospel, we hold that out as though that is the thing which is to be treasured above all. I have family members, as I know many of you have, that have passed away. Here in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a memorial service for a dear sister. The joy of being reconciled to family members who have passed away, to friends that we have lost, is an incredible joy. But if God is a means to that, instead of God himself just being our treasure, our greatest good, then we're not gathering to the Lord. We're using the Lord to gather to something else. Notice what he says here, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you together? Here's the second thing you need to notice. God is the one who does the gathering. To be gathered together to God is going to require that you desire Him, not some other thing, and using Him as a gateway to it, but He is the one that ultimately gathers us. How does He do this? I want to show you something. Don't flip there, just listen. Uh, In Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Ruth loves Naomi. She's going to take care of Naomi. I apologize. I'm, I've, missed my, I've missed my mark. I've hit the wrong scripture reference. Beg your pardon. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5. <laughs> Here's how we are gathered together to him. And you'll notice in this particular text, he makes the comment, your house is left to you desolate. This is a thread that runs throughout scripture. There are three metaphors here. Wings, the chicken, and the, the hen, and the house that is left desolate. These are three threads. We could run these threads all the way through the whole scriptures. We don't have time for that this morning, but they're a beautiful, rich tapestry that is formed. You'll notice that in cross-referencing the desolate house, there's a powerful statement that is made in Jeremiah 22.5. It makes a statement, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, if you will not obey my word... I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. The Father's statement is that the means he uses to gather his people together to him is his word, the thing that he reveals, the thing that he declares. When he speaks, that is the instrument that he uses to bring people together. And the way that he uses it is he sparks faith in the heart of the person who will hear so that that person will desire God, will hear what he says, and will seek to be drawn to God through his word in obedient faith. That is the tool. So number one, to be gathered is to desire God. Number two, to be gathered is to be gathered by God through his word. And number three, to be gathered will involve being gathered together with other believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's very important, though, that we understand the difference. Our being gathered together to the Lord is to desire Him, not to desire the fellowship and the company of other believers. That is a part of it. But that is not the ultimate prize. But it is involved. He makes a statement, I will gather you together. The together there obviously involves all the saints, all the believers. 
all this nation of Israel, all these Jews, he's wanted to gather all of them together. Not that they would be scattered, not that they would flee from him, and ultimately not that they would face the desolation that he warns of here in this very text. Just the opposite. To be gathered together is a beautiful and sweet thing. This is the verse that I hinted at. I jumped ahead of myself. In Ruth, in the book of Ruth, you have this sweet, God-fearing woman named Naomi who loses her husband. She's got two daughters-in-law who also lose their husbands. One of them, Ruth, makes the commitment that she's going to stick by Naomi. She's going to follow her. And she declares that your God will become my God. As she follows Naomi, she encounters a man. The question begins, does he love me or does he not? It's a great love story. Boaz ultimately recognizes her and praises her. And he makes the statement, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land. You have come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, that rich metaphor of being gathered together under the shelter of the Lord. She loses one nation, but she gains another. She loses one family, but she gains another. She loses one set of friends, but she gains another. Ultimately, though, she makes the commitment, first and foremost, that Naomi's God is going to be her God. So to be gathered together, the Lord desires, is to desire him. It's to be gathered by him, and it does involve others. This flies in the face of so many different comments that are made today. Comments like, yes, I will become a Christian, but I'm going to do it in my own way, at my own pace, in my own time, how I see fit. But God is the one that gathers. He's the one that's in control, not you. The second statement that we make sometimes is, yes, I love God, but man, I'm really looking forward. And the way that it's talked about is that the greatest pleasure is not seeing Jesus Christ face to face and saying, thank you, Lord, for dying for me on the cross, but the greatest pleasure is seemingly the streets of gold, the Emerald Palace, Zion. And the Bible does talk about those things, but that is not the ultimate reason that we come to the Lord. We come for Him. And then so often you sometimes hear, I will worship God. Yes, I love God, but I don't need the church. I don't need to go to worship. I can do the Christian life on my own as an individual. All of those fly in the face of what Jesus is saying here. God wants to gather his people together to himself by his power that they might enjoy him as their greatest treasure. His second statement that he makes here, that's his desire. I would long to gather you together as a hen gathers baby chicks, but look at what he says here. You would not... The Greek word there is thelo. It's the word for will. It has to do with choice. It has to do with decisions. It has to do with what path, what course of action you are going to take. To say yes to one thing is inevitably to say no to something else. I actually didn't go out on a date with Stephanie Adamson. I said no to her. But when I met my wife, I dated my wife, I said, yes, I want to marry Shanti Proposed. She said yes. I was saying yes to her. When I say yes to my wife... I'm also saying no to everyone else that is out there. 
I'm saying no to all the other women. I'm saying I'm going to be with Shanti. That is a choice which is an expression of the will. When you say I am going to choose God, you're saying I choose him over and against everything else. God's statement to these people was, though I have loved you, though I have longed to gather you together, though I have wanted you to be with me, you willed not at all. You desired not at all. You resolved, you chose not at all. These are people that did not want God. They chose against God. They would have told you that that's absolutely not the truth. These are the most religious people there are. They faithfully go to synagogue. They faithfully give alms. They faithfully read their Bible every day. And yet they did it all in such a way that though they thought they were worshiping God, they were not. They were using him for something else, namely their own exalted status and position to be applauded and approved of, to be respected and honored amongst all the people of Israel. The thing they desired more than anything else, including God, was their own honor, their own glory. And his statement here is, I wanted you to be with me, but you did not will it. Here's the consequences for that fateful decision. Verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From this moment on, the nation of Israel is going to experience what Romans calls a partial hardening. If you would, please flip with me over to the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 25. The judgment that Christ speaks over the house of Israel is much, much more dire and much, much more severe than the simple fact that in AD 70, Roman soldiers are going to come in and wipe Jerusalem off the map and destroy the temple. That will happen. Jesus is alluding to that. But he makes this statement, you will not see Christ again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul makes it explicitly clear what Jesus is pronouncing over this nation. He makes this statement in Romans eleven twenty five. 25. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. He makes the comment, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A hardening of their hearts has taken place. It's not absolute in the sense that the people of Israel for all the rest of time will no longer have opportunity to accept Christ. It's partial in the sense that for a long time they will be incapable of accepting Christ. But even there, there is a hint of eventual deliverance. This hardening is partial for Israel. It has been absolute for others. Flip back to Romans chapter 9, verses 17 to 18. In Romans 9, 17 talking about this mystery of a hardened heart, Paul, recounting the life of Pharaoh, says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's saying, Pharaoh, I put you in this position that I might show how awesome I am in the way that I'm about to destroy your nation and destroy you. This is a statement of judgment, and Paul makes it explicitly clear in the very next sentence. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It would be too much for me to take you all the way back to Exodus and walk you through all of those plagues that happened there. But what is happening is that Pharaoh is being exposed to the reality of the almighty, all-powerful God, and yet he can't bring himself to submit because he is hardened. So people ask the question, what exactly does that mean? 
Seeing as we have about 10 minutes left in the message this morning, I am not going to be able to walk you down all of the different rabbit trails of this mystery of the hardened heart, this mystery of iniquity, but I want to give you a taste of it. The Bible presents your ability to choose as a permission and a power. You are granted the ability to choose by God, and you are empowered to choose by God. Your ability to exercise your will is both a permission and a power. Simple illustration. How many of you, young people in particular, would love to go skydiving someday? Sounds great. Sounds awesome, right? Some of you are like, "Ah, I feel like there's a trick question coming. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. You shouldn't have raised your hand. (laughs) But I'm glad for your honesty. The odds of you slamming into the earth at terminal velocity inch up ever so slightly the moment you step into an airplane. The odds of you slamming into the earth at terminal velocity inch up ever so slightly more the moment you decide to jump out of that perfectly good airplane. Okay? Now, walk with me here, okay? I'm not saying it's wrong to jump out of airplanes with a parachute on. That's, that sounds like, for some of you, a wonderful activity. You know what I mean? It could be fun. It's not my cup of tea, but for some of us, you might enjoy that. To get into the airplane, ultimately, is a decision that you are presented with because somebody else created that possibility for you, okay? Somebody somewhere, the Wright brothers, to name the two most critical individuals involved, invented the technology of flight, Someone somewhere else invented the critical technology of a parachute. And then someone somewhere else put those two together and said, hey, it'd be great if we jumped out of airplanes with parachutes on. So now we have a wonderful pastime that we can engage in. You could not make the choice to go to the airport and put on a parachute until the actual possibility of those things was presented to you. Before that technology was invented, no one anywhere ever considered the possibility of jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on because it simply didn't exist. You don't read anywhere in ancient literature of the Greeks or the Romans saying, man, I really wish I could go skydiving right now. You won't find that, okay? It doesn't exist. Because of the invention of this technology, you now have the option. Now, we could get really technical here, but philosophy essentially says that what this is is the ultimate responsibility. Our choices come from an ultimate responsibility outside of ourselves. We Christians understand that ultimate responsibility to be God. Your ability to choose, to have the opportunity to choose, is given to you by God. But then there's also the desire in your heart to choose. It's what we call agent causation. Some people look at airplanes and they say, yeah, I want to go skydiving. Others of us, myself included, we look at airplanes and we say, no, no, I can't see myself throwing myself out of that at 10,000 feet. That's not my cup of tea. Now, for some of us, we might have that desire. We might say, yes, I want to jump out of the airplane. We go, we get the parachute on, we strap ourselves in, we get in the airplane, the airplane climbs up to 10,000 feet, they throw open the door, you come to the door and you look down, you realize what you're doing, you say, oh, all the desire has left me at this point, and I'm going to just go back to my seat and sit down. Others of us, we come, we see, we say, yes, the desire remains, and then we throw ourselves out of the airplane. The option to choose is given to you, The desire to choose has to be there. It has to actually be something that you want. The decision originates from within you, but not all of us will want that same choice. This is where things get interesting. 
What is the difference between the person who wants to choose to throw himself out of an airplane and the person who does not want to choose to throw himself out of the airplane? It has to do with what philosophers call the reality of will-setting moments. There is a particular way that you have chosen in the past which has shaped your character, which has shaped your personality, which will influence and shape your future decisions. Let me step back away from the airplane analogy for a second and engage in a different thought process. You go to a restaurant for the first time. You look at a menu for the first time. You have not tried anything in this restaurant. No one has made any recommendations to you. You're flipping through this menu. You've never looked at it before. You're not sure what to get. They all could be good. They could all be bad. So let's just say you randomly choose something that you think appeals to you. You choose quesadillas. That's great. It's a Mexican restaurant. Spicy food is your thing. You eat the quesadillas. They are wonderful. You come back to that restaurant a second time, and the choice will no longer be the same. You say, what do you mean? I've only tried one thing on the menu. There's still all this other great food I could try. Yes, but here's the thing. When you were presented with all of these possibilities the first time around, you were unbiased and uninfluenced. They were all legitimate options, but now you're presented with a dilemma. You see, you've had the quesadillas, and they were fantastic. Do you go with what you know is good, or do you go with something else? Do you try something else? Now, some of us, again, because of the way we're shaped, we'll always try something else. But for some of us, the risk is too much. Those quesadillas are really good. If I get something else, like the fried enchiladas, they could be okay, maybe not as good. There's some weird special sauce. I don't know what to make about that. Maybe I should go with what I know the quesadillas. Do you see? When you first looked at the menu, everything was a genuine option. But as soon as you chose, that choice affected you so that the next time you were presented with that choice, it's not going to affect you in the same way. You make the choice to throw yourself out of an airplane. You have chosen As you're plummeting towards the ground, you reach for your ripcord, you pull it, and guess what happens? A chute does not deploy. You might be thinking to yourself, this isn't what I chose, but it is. You did choose that when you decided to get in a plane, go up to 10,000 feet, and throw yourself out. There are choices which the scriptures reveal are will-setting moments in which when you choose a certain way, there's no coming back from that choice. And the scriptures say that the one who is sovereign over those choices is God the Father. Jesus is saying here to these guys, how I have longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her baby chicks but you willed not to be gathered. Do you know how many deathbed conversions are recorded in the scriptures? You hear it all the time. I want to go to heaven. I want to see my family again. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to burn, so to speak. I I want to be with my friends. I want to walk the streets of gold. I just don't want to do it right now. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to mess with all that stuff. I want to live my life for maximum fun, maximum entertainment. And when I get older in years, 
when I'm on my deathbed, then I will choose Christ. That is a very dangerous path to walk down because what most people never stop to consider is that course of action forms a character which on your deathbed may deny you the opportunity of choosing Christ. A number of years ago, I was up here at Royal Inland Hospital. There was a lady. I had been called to her bedside. I had the pager. She was in ICU. Doctor said she's got three to four hours to live. I sat down with her. Her daughter was there, and her daughter was pleading with me. She's not a Christian. Please do something. That is so heartbreaking. She loves her mom. She wants her mom to go to heaven. The reality is her mom's 90-some years old. Her whole life, she grew up in a Christian nation. Her daughter, among many other relatives, had witnessed to her time and time again. And yet she had chosen and willed time and again to reject Christ. Now, could Christ, could Christ break through in that moment and open her eyes and reveal himself to her and draw her into a relationship with himself? Absolutely. We serve a God of miracles. But again, do you know how many deathbed conversions are recorded in Scripture? Only one. A thief dying on the cross next to Jesus. He mocked him to start with, but by the end, he said, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He had the opportunity to witness the Messiah, the Son of God himself, in his final moments of crucifixion. And in those moments, God's grace broke through into his heart. It is not seen anywhere else in the Bible. And the reality is it's not seen too often here in this life, in this time, at the Royal Inn Hospital, as much as you might think. I sat down with this lady. I said, please, please give your life to the Lord. The doctors are saying that you only have a number of hours to live. She looked at me, and between coughing and gagging, she laughed, and she said, I think I'll be all right. Because she had thought she was all right for so long. She apologized to me. She said, I don't mean to smear your face or be critical of your religion. But I've been fine up until now, and I'm sure I'll be fine. This too shall pass. She died a few hours later. These guys have rejected Christ. And he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know who comes in the name of the Lord? Preachers and teachers who proclaim the truth of God's gospel, his word, who come in the name of the Lord and the Lord himself who comes in his own name. Christ's statement to these guys is, you will not see me until you are gathered by the power of my word. Christ is sovereign from start to finish. It has to do with desiring him. It has to do with wanting him. It has to do with others as well. But ultimately, it is his word that God gathers us together. A friend of mine, Dr. Bell, told me a story once of a friend of his who owned a farm that tragically burned to the ground. He said as he was surveying the wreckage and the carnage of all of the destruction 
the blackened countryside, the wood-framed, timbered barn that was no, lo- no longer standing, just looking at all this desolation, all this destruction. As he was walking through that carnage, there were dead animals here and there, and he noticed a scarred, burned chicken on the ground. He thought he saw it move, so to make sure it was dead, he kind of gave it a little nudge with his foot. And the dead chicken flopped over, and out from underneath that dead chicken scurried a bunch of bright yellow baby chicks. His comments to my friend were that it was the most striking thing he'd ever seen. All of the desolation, all of the carnage, blackened and charred. And these bright yellow chicks just sort of popped, just flourished and just looked brilliant on that background. He wasn't a Christian, but he made the comment, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Easter. The beauty of that moment and being explained to him that that's the love that God has for his people. That he would bear the torture of the cross to save us all from the carnage and the desolation of this world. That's Easter. We're all faced with many decisions. What job to have, where to live, what to do with our lives, who we're going to marry. Does she love me or does she not? But the most important decision is this. Will you be gathered together to the Lord? My hope and my prayer is that we would always pursue him and never be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we would have soft hearts. Let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, God, that you are powerful, that you are so good that you can even overcome our hardened hearts. You can break us free from the bondage of our past decisions and our past sin, our past rebellion against you. God, we all have been placed into moments where we just can't even find the ability to repent and to come back to you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace in our life. Father, knowing that every decision we make is powerful, that every choice we choose shapes us or molds us or shapes us in some way or even can harden our hearts if it's a sinful choice. Lord, I pray that you would keep our hearts soft, that you would walk with us in the midst of the desolation of this world, and that we, Lord, would always have the desire to walk with you. I pray, God, that you would do that in our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.